So we are in the middle of a sermon series called Loving Our Neighbors, right? So I opened it three weeks ago. I talked about the importance of empathetic listening, especially of listening to people who have less power than us in, you know, whatever system or scenario. And we talked about how the Bible is unique and that most of history is written by the powerful, right? Most of history is written by the winners of wars, by people who were educated and literate and had money. But the Bible is unique in that it's written almost exclusively from the standpoint of the marginalized. And so scripture itself teaches us what those kinds of voices can sound like. And it invites us to imitate God in hearing the cries of people who have less. And then that sermon was followed by two, I thought, fantastic guest speakers. I was really pleased and moved by both of them. So Austin Channing Brown, she came and she talked to us about partnering with the Holy Spirit to help dismantle big systems of oppression that hurt our neighbors. And if you guys missed her talk, it was dynamite, but she asked us not to put it up on the web. But I can send a private link to congregants if you'd like. Robin Charles was kind enough to do that for us. And then last week, Vivek Sankaran came, and he talked to us about the importance of having compassion on other people, and of bearing witness to their pain, and of not categorizing people in ways that dismisses or oversimplifies their humanity. I really liked the quote he used. He said, no one should be judged by their worst day. Right, so we've had this theme of listening to and of standing with our neighbors who might be oppressed. And some of the topics that we've been talking about have been complex. And so I want to acknowledge that 20 to 25 minute sermons are really not enough time to address all of those complexities. So I would just say, if there's something that struck you as unhelpful in one of those, feel free to release that to God. And then just hold on to the gems that the Holy Spirit has highlighted for you in these last few weeks. I also know that I can sometimes feel a little bit overwhelmed thinking about large systems of oppression. Maybe some of you do as well, because I'm not always sure what to do about it on a practical level. Right, so I'll touch that a little bit this week. And then next week I invited another one of our congregants, Rachel Brownson, who's there in the third row. Raise your hand, Rachel, to speak. So you may not know Rachel. She's worked on Sundays for a long time, but she's a chaplain at Mott's Children's Hospital and has been for some years. And so I asked her to come in to talk to us about how to care for ourselves in the midst of caring for others. Because that whole, like, love your neighbor as yourself implies that we love and care for ourselves as well and not just martyr ourselves for the sake of others. So I know I'm looking forward to hearing that. And then we'll close this sermon series out with the Sunday of service where we're partnering to go out and practically love our neighbors in the community. So today I'm going to pick up with a story from Luke chapter 10 about the Good Samaritan. And this is a passage that is often talked about in churches when we talk about loving our neighbors because it's a story that Jesus uses to answer the question, who are my neighbors? So to start, let's take a look at the scripture here. So in the time and place of Jesus, right, he lived in first century Judea, respected rabbis would sit to teach and then their students would sit around at their feet. And then when a student would recite a scripture or would ask a question, what they would do is they would often stand up to show respect for the rabbi. So Jesus is a rabbi, and in Luke chapter 10, where this story is found, his students are sitting around him. And one of them, who is called an expert in the law, right, meaning he's an expert in the law of Moses, which is found in the early part of the Old Testament. This expert of the law stands up, but it says instead of standing to show respect, we're told he stood to test Jesus. Right? He wasn't standing as a humble student who was willing to learn, but as someone who was coming with the purpose to outsmart Jesus and to try and make him look foolish. And so he asked Jesus, he says, okay, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
Well, perhaps sensing that this man was hoping to trip him up, Jesus doesn't answer the question, but rather he asks one in return. Those of you who are teachers, you know that trick. Jesus says to him, okay, well, tell me what's written in the law. How do you read it? You're the expert. And so the expert in the law says to him, he says, well, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, all of your strength, and all of your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, you've answered correctly, Jesus said, go and do this and you'll live. But the expert in the law, he doesn't stop there, right? The text says he wanted to justify himself. He wanted to justify himself. So he asked a follow-up question. He said, okay, well, then who's my neighbor? Well, in the language of scripture, to be justified means to be granted the status of a person who is accepted before God, right? To be justified is to be granted the status of a person who is accepted before God. So I would say I'm accepted before God because I am justified by Jesus, as as are you guys. Because of what Jesus did, I am accepted before God. It is a free gift. But this man, it says he's seeking to justify himself. As an expert in the law, he's in the business of trying to figure out how to follow the rules in such a way that God will accept him. Right? So if loving God and loving his neighbor will bring him life, he wants to be sure he knows exactly who Jesus considers to be his neighbor. And he knows that that verse, love your neighbor as yourself, he knows that that actually is being quoted from Leviticus. So Leviticus 19.18 says, do not seek revenge or bear grudge against anyone from among your own people but love your neighbor as yourself, right? This is an important line in the law of Moses. But if you take that line at face value, it seems like this expert's neighbor may just be his fellow Hebrews, right? Don't bear a grudge against anyone from your own people, from the Jews, but love your neighbor. So perhaps this man's neighbor is just his fellow Jew and no one else. But then later on in that same chapter, In Leviticus, in verses 33 to 34, it says, when a foreigner resides among you in your land, don't mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you also were foreigners in Egypt. So that seems to imply that anybody who is living among you is your neighbor. So this man, you know, he's trying to test Jesus. He wants to know what Jesus is going to say to him. Are only his fellow Jews neighbors, or does Jesus think that this call is larger? You know, some of the thinkers in Jesus' time felt that the law was limited to caring for the Jewish people, the demands of it in this sense. And so Jesus, he famously responds to the guy with the parable of the Good Samaritan. So I'm just going to read the whole thing here. It's Luke chapter 10, verses 30 to 37. It says, in reply, Jesus said, well, there was a man. He was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he was attacked by robbers. And they stripped him of his clothes, and they beat him, and they went away, leaving him half dead. Well, a priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, he came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. And he went to him, and he bandaged his wounds, and he poured on oil and wine. And then he put the man onto his own donkey, he brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper and he said, look after him. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have had. And so Jesus went on. He said, okay, well, which one, which one of these three do you think was the neighbor, a good neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus said, okay, go and do likewise. So to unpack this, we're first going to look at the setting here. So this story took place on a road that was going between Jerusalem and Jericho, right? Those are both cities that exist today. I've actually ridden a bus between the two. 
And the thing that is really surprising about them is actually how close they are. I know I've talked about that with Bethlehem. You know, Bethlehem is like seven miles from Jerusalem. You can see Bethlehem from Jerusalem and vice versa. Well, Jericho is not that much further. Jericho is only about 15 miles outside of Jerusalem. So it's about a day's walk. It takes next to no time in a car. And Jerusalem is built up in the hills while Jericho is down closer to sea level. So if you're walking from Jerusalem, you're walking downhill. And so what we have is this man who is traveling on this road between these two cities and he's been robbed and beaten and stripped of his clothes. And then along come these three men. Well, the first one is a priest. And this priest would have been a man who served in the great temple in Jerusalem. And the thing that's important to hear here is that there were three classes of people who served at the temple in Jerusalem. First you had the priests, and then you had the Levites, and then you had lay people. And the lay people were helping with various aspects of keeping the temple up and functioning. So the temple was actually like a center of sort of Jewish life and spirituality. It was quite large, the court of the Gentiles. We know Jesus went and overthrew the money changers. People were, you know, buying animals and selling them for sacrifices. There were a lot of things that had to go into managing the temple. And so you had the priests, the Levites, and the lay people, and everybody knew this. So most of the priests in Jesus' time lived in Jericho. And so what they would do is they would do like two-week stints or like two-week assignments up at the temple in Jerusalem and then they would go back home where their families and their homes were. And so priests were also relatively wealthy. It was an inherited position. And it's likely that this priest in Jesus' story would be pictured in people's minds as probably riding some kind of animal. Like it wouldn't have cost him much to ride an animal rather than walk down this road. Now, Jesus' listeners would have understood this context. And it's likely they would have assumed that, oh, well, this is a priest who had just finished his assignment in the temple. He's on his way home to Jericho, and that's what priests did. And this priest, he sees this man who's been beaten, and he looks at him, and he keeps going home. Well, it might seem to us like, well, gosh, it would seem like it would be really easy to help this guy. He's probably on a donkey or some kind of animal. He's already heading home. He's going to a city that's not too far away, but there are actually several factors probably at play. Because if you're a priest, if you approach a man that says he's half dead, and he can't tell, if he goes up and he touches him, and it turns out the man is actually dead, that makes the priest then ceremonially unclean. And if he becomes ceremonially unclean, that means that he would have to turn around and go back to Jerusalem and stay there for a week, and do a week's worth of purification rituals. And during that time, he wouldn't be able to eat from the food that had been tied to the temple, and neither would his family or his servants back in Jericho. On the other hand, if the priest went up and he touched the man and the man wasn't dead, but then he later died, the priest would be obligated to rend his clothing, right, to tear it apart, which would be costly. And the priest, if he came defiled in any way, and then he tried to hide it. So let's say he touched the guy, it turned out he was dead, and he was like, okay, I hope nobody saw me but maybe somebody did. If he went and then he performed functions in the temple at a later time, he could actually be killed for doing that. Even the risk of being accused of such might weigh in his decision to help or not to help. So it was both potentially inconvenient as well as personally risky for him. Now, when I lived in China, I I, uh, discovered a surprising cultural difference. I see Jin Jin back here. So oftentimes I discovered if somebody was hurt in public, Like if they got hit by a car, they had like a medical emergency on the street, people would gather around and watch, but they often wouldn't call for help or actually help. Is that, would you find that to be true? 
I think that is. So I was given a couple of explanations for why this is. So one is that people are afraid of being sued by the people who are actually hurt. So there was a famous case a few years ago where that happened, and so there's some legitimate fear of that happening. But the phrase I heard most often was Xiaoguanqianchur. I say it all right? Xiaoguanqianchur, which roughly translates as mind your own business. And so one day I was riding my bike and I was riding it down a busy road near my apartment. So I used to take my bike up into the mountains and he'd do all the hard work, you know, riding up. And then in like 10 minutes, I could just like bust down that mountain and I'd be going so fast. So I'm on the end, the tail end of this and I'm coming into the city and I'm going down this street and I'm riding behind a motorcycle. And then I watch this motorcycle, he takes a turn. We were at a T, it was like this. I'm riding this way. And he takes this turn going way too fast and he just wipes out spectacularly. You know, he goes down and he's sliding around and he ends up hitting a pole and he didn't have a helmet on. And so I raced over to see if I could help on my bike. And I got him to sit up and he could talk but not very well. And um, he was in shock. Probably had broken a few bones, but the thing I was worried about, he had a lot of blood running out of the in of, inside of his ear. So I was afraid that he'd actually cracked his skull. And so getting help would be um, timely, it might be. So there were a bunch of nearby construction workers, like there were these apartments that were being built nearby and they had also watched this happen and so they started pouring down into the street and they came running over and they were all standing around but nobody was offering to help or calling for help. So I started just yelling at a guy, call the Red Cross, call the Red Cross because I didn't know how to say ambulance and the Red Cross was like the big hospital. So he didn't do anything, so I asked him if he understood what I was saying because my Chinese is not great, and sometimes my tones can be a little bit off. But he said that he understood, so I just kept yelling it, call the Red Cross, call the Red Cross, call the Red Cross, until he finally did. But I could tell that he was reluctant. He just had this like crazy woman yelling at him in the street. So he did it. So when I was thinking about the Good Samaritan story, I was thinking about this motorcycle accident because for that man calling the Red Cross, it was not only inconvenient, but potentially in his mind might have been risky. You know, it's easier to either pass by or to just be a bystander. Well, to top it off, in our story that Jesus is telling here, the priest probably couldn't tell the ethnicity of the beaten man. You know, people from lots of different ethnicities and cultures lived in Palestine in Jesus' day, and this man had been beaten unconscious, so you wouldn't be able to tell what language he was speaking or what accent he had. He'd been stripped of his clothing, and the priest wouldn't be able to tell based on how he was dressed. And if the victim wasn't Jewish, the priest didn't have a responsibility under the law as it was understood at that time to help him. So helping him might have been ceremonially unclean, it might have created some hassles for the priest, it might have meant he'd have to rend his garments, and he might be accused of being unclean. So all of these things factor into him deciding whether or not he's willing to help. And all for helping a man, he's not even sure he's obligated to help. And so weighing all these factors, he moves on. Well, the next person to pass by then is a Levite. And Levites often functioned like assistants to the priests in the temple. So the Levites would have known the priests and the priests would have known the Levites. Even Jericho wasn't a very big town. <clears throat> so you would assume that this Levite had known this priest who passed by. And so if this Levite had helped the wounded man and then found out later that one of the priests hadn't, it might be an insult to the priests. Like what, does, does this... Levite think he knows more about the law than the priest? Does he think he's better? Well, because Jesus included a priest and a Levite, it would have been natural for the listeners then to assume that the third person in this story Jesus is telling would be a, a layperson, right? A priest, a Levite, and a layperson. 
But that's not what Jesus does, right? He shows us a Samaritan. So Samaritans are from a region called Samaria, which is actually quite a bit of a large swath of the West Bank today. And they were despised in Jesus' time because they practiced an alternative form of Judaism. Right, so their history is actually traced back in the Bible to the book of 2 Kings. There's a really weird story that involves lions eating people that I won't get into. Feel free to read it. But the nub of it is this. Back in that time, the Assyrians had come down and conquered the part that is northern Israel, uh, the kingdom of Judah, and they'd taken the men away into exile. And so the king of Assyria, he sent some other men, some foreign men from Assyria and from Babylon. He said, go and live in those cities and take them over. And so those men came down and they married some of the women and they assimilated. And eventually they came to um, adopt parts of Judaism and then they mixed that religion with some of their own religions and some of their own beliefs. Right, so we might call that like folk Judaism. So they had some different sacred spaces. They had some different practices. And they actually believed that the proper place for the temple for the Jews wasn't actually on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem, but was in a place called Mount Gerizim. Now, I remember um, when I studied in Israel, and then I recently read an article about it later, there are actually still people who identify as Samaritans. There's not very many of them. There's like 700 of them that still live near or on Mount Gerizim. But in the time of Jesus, historians think there could have been close to a million people who identified as such. And so the Jews in Jesus' time, they despised the Samaritans. They were seen to be heretical and less than. Right? If you remember that story, I think it's in John, um, where he's taught, I think it's John 8, where he meets a Samaritan woman at the well, and she's surprised that he's talking to her, not just because he's a male and she's a female, but because he's a Jew and she's a Samaritan. And so the Samaritan in Jesus' story comes along and he bandages the man's wounds and he pours oil and wine on them, which is like an emergency medication. He puts him on his donkey, he takes him to an inn, he leaves money for about two weeks worth of room and board, and then he offers to pay more at a later date if it's needed. Now the thing to understand here is that at that time, if you stayed in an inn and then you weren't able to pay your debts, you could actually be sold into slavery. So innkeepers had sometimes poor reputations, and this wounded man, he had nothing. He didn't even have clothes. And so the Samaritan here, he's ensuring that this man would have enough to cover more expenses if it's needed, and that would prevent something worse even happening to him. So the thing is, all of the Samaritan's help here, it would have been just as inconvenient for him as it would have been for a priest, and probably just as risky as well. So the historian, Ken Bailey, he says, you know, there were really no inns between Jerusalem and Jericho because there weren't any villages large enough between the two for that to be necessary. If people needed to stay the night, they would just continue on to Jericho or to Jerusalem. And so the Samaritan would have taken this wounded man probably to an inn on the outskirts of Jericho, which was potentially dangerous because it was Jewish territory. And it was dangerous for a Samaritan to travel there and then to linger, especially if he was transporting a wounded Jewish man. And so that's probably why the Samaritan doesn't stay there for more than one night, but rather moves on his way and leaves some money. So Jesus concludes his story by saying, okay, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of those robbers? And the expert in the law said, well, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus said, okay, go and do likewise. So what is Jesus doing here? Well, first, I think... What he's doing is he's telling this smart aleck expert in the law that compassion trumps rules, right? The expert wants 
rules. And Jesus implies that the priest and the Levite were trying to follow the rules and what they were doing was practicing their faith badly. Right? The priest and the Levite, they're trying to evaluate things through the eyes of the law and what would make me pure and unpure. Who am I obligated to help? Who am I not obligated to help? And Jesus is saying, you are in the wrong mission right now. That is not what I am after. You know, the Samaritans, they follow all the wrong rules. You know, they've got this sort of, I want to say like bastardized version of Judaism. But the man who showed compassion, he's the one who is finding life. To find life, you need to have a soft heart, not the master right from wrong. And that goes all the way back to Genesis and our call to eat from the tree of life and not from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Second, Jesus seems to be saying that it's not just people of our own culture who are neighbors, or even people living within our own cultures, but even our enemies and people that we despise. Right? So one of the things that sets Christianity apart is enemy love. Jesus tells us to love our enemies and to pray for people who persecute us. And the third thing I notice in Jesus' story is that it's about a person helping someone who is right in front of them. You know, the Samaritan man probably didn't come across the Jewish man who had been beaten up every day of his life. Right? But the one time that he did, he acted. And I think I can so easily become overwhelmed by sort of the needs of the world and of our community that I want to go out and like just find a bunch of people to help. But if we're paying attention in our own circles to the people in front of us, you know, in our offices, in our churches, in our schools, if you're a student, a high schooler here, if you're um, looking at Abby, <laughs> uh, if you're your kids' schools, if we're seeing the people in front of us, there are a lot of people who are wounded and who are bleeding. So I'd say first, pay attention to the people who are right in front of you. And as we practice loving our neighbors, we remember that none of us is called to be a hero. You know, so I, I love this short book by Roberta Bondi. She's a scholar. I think she's at Emory University. And it's called To Love as God Loves. And what she's done is she's studied some of the early Christian monastics. So these were some of the men in the first couple of centuries after Jesus died who went off into the desert and uh, lived like monks. And so in studying them, she says, this, she says, you know, beginners in the desert, they had to learn to be humble. That is, they had to abandon this heroic image of the self. And they had to learn to believe that all human beings, themselves included, were weak and vulnerable. And they needed to learn instead to take up appropriate tasks. And appropriate tasks for weak and vulnerable human beings are ones that can actually be performed. They had to learn to accept it as true that all tasks contribute to the final goal. And the small ones are often of infinite significance. And we live out even the small tasks of our daily life as unto the Lord, understanding as the Desert Fathers did, that helping in small ways as well as large leads to the greater good. You know, I once had a mentor, um, much to my chagrin, tell me that I should pray the serenity prayer every day. And so God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things that I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Right? That's part of AA spirituality as well. So I'd say, if you're wondering how to respond to the last couple of speakers, start with what's in front of you. Aware that you have limits as well. And in the story Jesus told, that Samaritan probably couldn't continue to stay at the inn, right? That wounded man, he probably couldn't do that without getting hurt or putting himself in jeopardy. So he knew his limits to help, but he did help with everything he had within those limits. 
And my hope in talking about things like privilege and systemic oppression and various power dynamics in our culture and the, the conversations that are going on in our wider culture, what it does is gives us a Jesus-shaped framework through which to process some of what's going on in our society so that we can recognize when power is being misused and our instinct is to help and to protect and to stand with. Right? We can listen to people without judging them or their emotions. We can use language that is dignifying to everyone's humanity. We can bear witness to people's suffering. Right? We can validate the suffering they're experiencing and not just explain it away or tell them how they should be feeling. We can have soft hearts toward people who are hurting and we can stand with the oppressed. And like the Samaritan, we can exercise incredible, overwhelming generosity when it is in our power to do so. You know, that Samaritan, he used his time, he used every available resource that he had at that time. And he took out his wine and his oil and his money and his time and he went and he stayed in that inn for a night. He gave everything that was within his power in that moment. And I would say everyone is us and everyone is our neighbor. And so when we encounter a hurting neighbor, we offer what we have right to the people who are in front of us. All right, let's take a couple of minutes of silence here. Invite you if you're willing to, to just picture with me here. What I've been thinking about is like just Holy Spirit, show us the person in our life who is just wounded and bleeding, who is like just in our daily life. And maybe they haven't even told you, but maybe the Holy Spirit can reveal to you that there's somebody right in front of you who you would be able to just speak some words of love to and to offer that oil and wine to sort of caring for their emotional wounding. So I'll keep my, I'll keep my um, eye on the time as we invite the Holy Spirit to come and it doesn't have to be perfectly silent. People and babies make noise. So, Lord Jesus, we invite you to come and just speak to us and highlight the people in our lives who are hurting and who you would like to help, like empower us to help bring some healing into the world around us.
Thank you, Lord.